0: You need to take your Bible. You are definitely going to need your Bible tonight, or this morning, rather. Um, You're going to need that, and if you don't have your Bible with you, there should be one right in front of you in the back of that pew. If you're sitting against the wall, um, you might need to get up and grab one of those Bibles if you don't have yours with you. You're going to need it. It's going to be Mark chapter 8, and I'm going to give you a little warning. You're going to have to think this morning. I know that's not good news. Some of you who are grumpy just got a little more irritable. You don't want to come to church to think. I know. But we need to learn the discipline of engagement with the Word of God. We've got to do serious business with what God says in His Word. And when He says something in His Word that comes into conflict with who we are and how we live, we've got to make the adjustment. Amen? That was so weak. (laughs) Sam, show us how a Lafayette football player says amen. 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 All right. So let's adjust this morning, okay, because we're going to be talking about compassion. We're going to be talking about, is there anybody that you might be withholding compassion from or to? So we're going to be talking about that this morning. And um, let me start out by telling you, in France some years ago, there lived a poor blind woman. And she had obtained the gospel of Mark in Braille. That's the way the blind people um, read the raised lettering, it was all she had, the Gospel of Mark in Braille. And she read it with the tips of her fingers, and she read it, and she read it until finally her fingers became so calloused that she began to lose her sense of touch. She couldn't distinguish the letters. So in an ill-conceived effort to try to resensitize her fingers, she cut the tips of them. But it made them even worse and even less sensitive. And so she felt that she must now give up her beloved book of Mark and weeping. She pressed it to her lips saying, farewell, farewell, sweet word of my Savior. And to her surprise, she discovered that her lips could read Braille. They were more sensitive than her fingers. And all that night, overflowing with joy, she read the book of Mark with her lips. That's a true story. Friends, I love the book of Mark. It is my favorite gospel. They're all great. I don't know if it's even right to say you have a favorite gospel, but admittedly, it is my favorite gospel. I hope that you are falling in love with the book of Mark even more, and through that, falling in love with Jesus Christ. And I want to thank Dave and Steve, who over the last two weeks just amazingly brought forth more truth, more gospel, more incredible pictures of Jesus Christ. And if you were here two weeks ago, Dave preached through the miraculous feeding of the 5,000. Well, guess what? Today we're going to look at the miraculous feeding of the 4,000, and you might be thinking, Well, this is going to be kind of redundant. This is going to be a little bit boring. I don't even know why I came today. Number one, you're in sin. Number two, you don't know the the feeding of the 4,000 yet. I hope to bring out some distinctions for you this morning that is going to be pretty exciting for all of us. Why are there two? I mean, don't you wonder this? Why are there two miraculous feeding miracles? What are we going to learn from this second one that we haven't yet learned in the first one? Well, to answer that question, I trust you have your Bibles open, Mark chapter 8. Look at the first three words, at least in the ESV, the English Standard Version. In those days. Now listen, if you're going to be a student of the Word of God, you can't just leave those three words and press forward into Scripture. You've got to know Why did Mark even write those words? Every word's important in the Word of God. If he's writing in those days, then there's something that we need to extrapolate. We need to draw out of that, and we need to have the discipline to be able to say, well, what was happening in those days? Because it's going to have direct bearing on how we understand the the miracle that we're about to look at. So in those days, forces us, friends, to go back, to look in the rear view mirror of Mark and to find out, Mark chapter 7, what really was happening. Well, let's do that. Flip back one page if you need to. Mark chapter 7. (coughs) I have a bit of a head cold, so some of you fall asleep on me. This is my payback for you. Just hang in there. Now, when the Pharisees gathered verse 1 to him, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw some of his disciples, that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled. Now, what is happening here? Well, we've got a confrontation. We've got a fight. We've got a battle. And it's ramping up. The Pharisees and scribes, by the way, most scribes were Pharisees. They were Jewish lawyers. They were the religious leaders. They were the teachers of Judaism, the religion of the Jews. And they they were starting to ramp up their opposition to Jesus. Listen, they're starting to hate Jesus. And they're starting to try to trap Jesus into error. And they're trying to humiliate Jesus and demean Jesus and bring him down in the eyes of the populace, the people, the Jews. And so we've got this battle that's brewing between the pharisees and the scribes and jesus now you remember mark is writing he's writing to a gentile audience these aren't jews that he's writing to and so listen a gentile is not going to really understand what's the significance of unclean or defiled hands do you really understand that i mean does your mind kind of go well does that mean that They just didn't use soap? I mean, what's it mean to have defiled and unclean hands? This is important to know. By the way, friends, this is the very essence of the breach between the Pharisees and Jesus. You want to know in summary form, why did they hate Jesus so much? Well, here you're looking at the very core of it. You see, the Pharisees had what was called the tradition of the elders, Other word is the oral law. You know what? The oral law was passed from rabbi to rabbi and taught to the people. And it became authoritative. In fact, the tradition of the elders, the rabbis, became more authoritative than even the Old Testament itself. And it was in 200 AD that it was finally taken from oral form, teaching form, and put into a written form. It's called the Mishnah. And so we've got this oral tradition, the elders' tradition. And the, in verse 2, the Pharisees were upset because the disciples, look what it says, they ate with hands that were defiled. And to the Jews, that meant that they were unclean hands, Listen, meaning that they were no longer fit for serving and worshiping God. Don't you remember the psalmist that says, have clean hands and clean feet? That was a, that was a command to the, to the priests who labored in the temple. They had to have all of these elaborate washings. Because if they didn't wash their hands from the bronze labor, then their hands were unclean and they were not fit. So what happened was, and this might be a little bit boring, but you've got to get this. If you're going to understand the miracle that we're going to look at, this is all a necessary background. 200 years before Jesus came, before he was born on this planet. The Jewish leaders said, no, that's not just for priests. That's for every Jew. Every Jew's got to have their hands clean. Every Jew's got to observe these rituals. And every Jew's got to clean, have undefiled hands if they're going to fit be fit for service and worship of Yahweh. In fact, if you didn't. And they believed you were open to a demon. Not only open to a demonic attack, you're gonna be poverty, you're gonna be poverty stricken. And not only poverty stricken, disaster is gonna fall on you and on your family. And with that fear, they whipped the Jews into all of these observations of regulations and rituals. And here's what they did. Before every meal, interestingly, between every course of meals of the food, They would take, the servant would bring water that was stored in these big jars, stone jars. Now listen, this is interesting. And they would take one and a half eggshells of water. And they would have the master of the home or the people about to eat, their hands would be down like this and they would pour, actually they'd be up like this, they'd pour water on the fingertips and the water would run down to the wrists and fall down. They would do that with both hands, and then they would take the fist, and they would clean the palm of one hand, and then take the fist and clean the palm of the other. But now you've got the water that was used to clean your hands is now defiled. It's unholy. It's uncleaned before God. So then you put your hands down, and the servant would take one and a half eggshells of water, and they would... Pour it on your wrists and the water would flow down off your fingers and then you would dab your hands dry on a clean cloth. They did that before they ate and in between every course of their meal. Friends, this is the cleaning ritual that was dominating the people. And guess what? The disciples didn't do that. And the Pharisees viewed them as being unclean before the eyes of God. And if the disciples are unclean, then the master, Jesus, is unclean as well. So we've got this battle brewing over the rituals of being clean before God. Now, what's it mean to be clean before God? Well, it simply means that you are in right standing before God, that he sees you as holy, he sees you as undefiled, and they believed that observing these rituals would make you clean before God. In fact, it wasn't just for the washing of their hands. They had 35 pages in the Mishnah that governed with all these thousands of regulations how you cleaned all of the implements that you would use on a daily basis. And so we get to Mark chapter 7 and look down a little bit to verse 14. And all of a sudden, we've got Jesus responding to them. Now, if you're looking at that, you're going to skim through that, and you're going to see that Jesus basically says, listen, it's not what goes on outside of your body that makes you clean. It's your heart. It's the uncleanness of everyone's heart. That means sin is in every person's heart. That's what makes you defiled before God. And guess what? Ceremonial water is not going to wash your heart clean. Only the blood of jesus christ and so we've got this conflict brewing and we've got a quandary we've got a problem now you've got to keep track of this in the book of mark or else you're going to lose the significance the book of mark is mainly a training manual for the disciples listen they're the church they're the church in embryonic form they're the young church 12 let's detract judas from that Let's say 11 disciples following Jesus with right intentions. They are going to be the church. The church is going to spring from their ministry. And so the disciples have got to get what Jesus is teaching. And if they don't get that there is sin in every one of our hearts and that Judaism cannot take that sin away, only the blood of Jesus Christ can justify us, put us in right standing before the Father, so that when God looks at us, he sees undefiled, clean people. If they don't get this, then the church will never be able to preach the gospel. So what does Jesus do? Look at verse 24. And from there, Jesus arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Friends, you know what he does? Listen, this might be a little shocking or at least a little surprising. He takes his disciples on a short-term mission trip. To all places, of all places, and by the way, I am sure the disciples were scratching their heads He takes him to the land of the Gentiles. They go outside of Galilee, outside of Palestine, the land of the Jews. They go north and west to the coast and land entire. This was not a place populated by Jews. This was a place of Gentiles. Today it's Lebanon. And strict Jews believed, listen, this is what they believed. They believed that when you go to the market, That food was probably harvested, it could have been, by a Gentile. It may have been transported in a Gentile wagon. It may be run, the market stall, by a Gentile. So when you come home, you've now been tainted by Gentiles. So you've got to come home and strict Jews would take water out of those stone jars and put them in a basin and listen friends, I'm not exaggerating, they would immerse their entire bodies in that water to wash off The defilement of Gentiles. Who's a Gentile? A Gentile. Is anybody born not a Jew? And Jesus goes into Gentile land because he's teaching these disciples, this church, that what makes a person unclean before God, it's not your ethnicity. It's not whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. All people are unclean before God because all people sin. Sin is universal to humanity. And so the mission trip, the mission of Jesus, the Son of God, was to provide a way. To provide a way of escape from sin that can make us clean before his Father. So what happens on that mission trip? You remember it. In fact, Steve Shetlick preached on this last summer, I think last year at one point, the Syrophoenician woman. And in case you don't know, Mark says in verse 26, by the way, she was a Gentile. And if she's a Gentile, then her daughter, who's possessed by a demon, is a Gentile. And if you want to have even more proof, she says, but even the dogs get to eat some crumbs. You see, the Jews had a name for Gentiles that were called goy. Goy means dog. I've been called Goy by a Jew before. We're actually really good friends. She did it teasingly. At least we were good friends. We are. That's how Jews view Gentiles, as dogs. And so she knew that. So Jesus, the Jew, she says, but even dogs, even Gentiles get to eat from the master's crumbs that fall from the table. And Jesus marveled at her faith, and he healed her her daughter. He cast the demon. But this is entire, this is Syrophoenician woman. This is a Gentile, and all the while, 12 disciples, soon 11 of them to be the church, are learning, wow, this is not what I was taught growing up. God's favor doesn't extend to Gentiles. We're the chosen people. Gentiles are outside the promises of God. They're defiled as an ethnic group in front of God, before God. But that needs to be corrected. And so this mission trip now that's going to last several months is all about taking what he taught in chapter 7 and applying it and demonstrating it in chapter 8 so that the disciples will get it, that they will understand God loves all people. Jew and Gentile. And then we get to verse 31, and we find that Jesus leaves Tyre. He goes 20 miles north to Sidon. And after there, he travels eastward across the top of the Sea of Galilee down to the southeastern shores into the region called Decapolis. Listen, Decapolis, remember Bruce Jenner, right? It wasn't in 1976 that he won the Decathlon, 10 events The decathlon is ten cities. It's a region made up of ten main cities. And listen, the decathlon had a purpose. These cities had a mission. They had a job. They were installed. They were built. They were fortified for one main reason, and that was to take Greek culture and spread it east. So there weren't really a lot of Jews that lived there. These were mainly Gentiles. And if you remember, Jesus has been there one time before. Don't you remember that storm on the Sea of Galilee? The disciples were afraid they were going to drown. Jesus brings an end to the storm. He brings a great calm. They land on the southeastern side of the Sea of Galilee into the Decapolis region. The disciples thinking they're going to get a little vacation. Here comes running toward them a man possessed by a demon. Jesus casts that demon out of that man into a herd of 2,000 pigs. They go running down those limestone slopes right into the Sea of Galilee and drown. And all the people begged Jesus to stay, begged him to leave. Not. But for one, the man who was freed. You see, that was a rescue mission for one man. And that man that was freed begged Jesus to go with him. And Jesus says, no, I don't want you to go with me. I want you to be my witness right where you live. Go home and tell everybody what mercies that God has given to you. And you know what? Well, the text says in Mark 5, 20, The man went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. And so we get to chapter 8, and all of a sudden, the same region that begged him to leave before, now there's a great crowd that had come to Jesus. Could it be, perhaps, that that man's witness? So powerfully transformed that area that people now heard about Jesus and didn't want him to leave, they wanted him to stay. You know, John Bunyan, author of Pilgrim's Progress. How many of you have read Pilgrim's Progress? It's a great book. I'd really encourage everybody to read it. Do you know that John Bunyan said that he owed his salvation to overhearing three or four older women talking as they sat in the sun of what God had done for them. That's how Bunyan got saved. He just overheard people boasting on God. People giving testimony of the mercies of God. Listen, your witness and your testimony as well as mine, they are powerful and by all indication, this man's testimony changed the region. And so now we get back to Mark chapter 8, we get to verse 1, and in those days, now we understand, we understand what's happening in those days. They're on a short-term mission trip. It's going to last several months. Jesus is taking what he taught in Matthew in Mark chapter 7. He's demonstrating it up into the Gentiles whom the Jews looked at as being un, as being unclean and defiled as an ethnic group. And he's waking the disciples up to the love of God that is for the Jew and for the Gentile. And Matthew tells us in his account of this that they're on a mountain. Listen, Jesus goes on a mountain for only two reasons. Well, you heard last week with Steve, he went up there to pray, right? But almost always when Jesus goes on a mountain, it's to preach. You see, the acoustics were that he would go up on the mountain and the crowds would gather below him, not above him, And Like today's amphitheaters are usually going up. Not back then. Their acoustics traveled down and he would preach to the crowd below him on the slopes of the mountain. Jesus has gone up on this mountain. They're out in the desolate region of the Decapolis. Listen, there's ten cities and not a lot of villages in this area. It is remote, barren country and they're on the side of the Sea of Galilee. And look what look what it says behind me in Matthew 15. And people were bringing with them the lame, the blind, crippled, mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet and he healed them friends. Listen, climb inside this story. You bring your lame and you bring your crippled and your blind all the way out in the country, up a mountain, and you'll understand this was an arduous, difficult, taxing journey. This wasn't just outside the one of those cities. This was desolate, the disciples said. And that detail is important. They weren't there for the afternoon. They weren't doing fly-by healings. They were there for the duration. They wanted to hear Jesus. They wanted to linger in his presence. By the way, this is so amazing to me. I can almost always tell when the word of God has really moved powerfully in a worship service. Listen, it, it, this happened in youth ministry, and it happens in Sunday morning worship ministry as well. People tend to linger in the sanctuary. and They tend to linger with one another. You don't really want to rush out of here. Friends, that's the way it's supposed to be. When you meet with God with your community of faith, you don't want to leave them. They didn't want to leave Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration when he was transformed before, be, before them. They didn't want to go back in the valley. They didn't want to go out in the world again where the demons are, where the difficulty is. You tend to want to linger where the Spirit of God has been working. And so they're there, not for one day, not for two days. They're there three days with Jesus, verse 2 says. And they were hungry for the gospel. They were hungry for their, for his teaching, and, and they had depleted their food supply. So how we read into this, they've been three days without food. That's not what the text says. While they were there for three days, they had depleted their food. And Jesus shows a glimpse of his heart in verse 2. He says this, I have compassion on the crowd. Friends, do you realize that Jesus has never, ever spoken those words before this point? Well, you might be saying, well, Pastor Tim, I've I've seen those words. You saw those words as the disciples were observing Jesus, but this is the first time Jesus has verbalized, I have first person compassion on the crowd. And the compassion of Jesus finds expression as he says, if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. When he performed The feeding of the 5,000 that Dave preached on, listen, friends, they were in Galilee. And you know, in Galilee, there's 240 towns, villages, and cities. You don't go far in Galilee before you bump into another town. And there are lots of places, ample places, ample resources. It was a lush region of Palestine to buy food and to acquire food, but they're not in Galilee anymore. They're in the desolate area of the Decapolis. And food was not readily available. But listen, biblical compassion, listen, biblical compassion doesn't wait for ideal circumstances. Listen, try saying that to your wallet. It's hard. Biblical compassion doesn't wait till you get a little extra money in the bank. And it doesn't wait till you feel better and you've got a little more time on your hands to help. Biblical compassion reacts to the need. Can you imagine Jesus saying this, seeing this crowd in their increasingly famished state and saying, you know, I really feel awful for these people, but we've got a schedule to meet. So pack it up. Let's move it out. We've got to go to Magadan. He doesn't say that. He knew that if they tried to walk all the way home, they will faint on the way. You want to know what that word faint means? Here we go. I want you to picture a bow, a hunter's bow. I want you to put it on the end and take the bowstring off the top of that bow and let it fall limp to the ground. That's That's the word picture that they use. This is the word for that. They're going to fall limp. They're going to collapse. They're not going to make it if they try to come home and journey home from this mountainous terrain with no food. You know, friend, we need to understand a little bit more what compassion is. Let's just take it in three layers. Let's start with the dictionary, right? you got com, the prefix, means to be with or alongside another. And then you've got, surprisingly, this word passion that means to suffer deeply, right? The passion of the Christ. Passion means to suffer deeply. Compassion means to come alongside someone who is suffering deeply. That's one layer. But it gets a little deeper when you begin to look at the Greek of this because the phrase that Jesus spoke, I have compassion, three words in English, one word in the Greek. I can't even pronounce the word. It's a word that means to move all the way into the inner organs. The deepest part the Jews believed that a person had were their bowels. Listen, we understand this. We're just not using the right vernacular yet. Here's how we say it. It's like getting punched in the gut. It's gut-wrenching. Right? You ever gotten that call that uh, a good friend of yours and maybe a family member, his or her spouse had an affair? And when that news hit you, it was like getting smacked right in the stomach. Nauseous. That's what the word compassion means. You ever had somebody that uh, got, got a report back from the doctor that they have cancer? And they told you about it. You remember that feeling that went through you it was like butterflies, went right up your stomach? That's what it means, gut-wrenching. I feel sick, Jesus is saying. I feel sick in my gut that they are suffering. Listen, I'm not even adding to this. I'm not even ex- exaggerating this. This is what it means. Jesus is saying, I'm seeing this crowd, and they're having hunger pains, and it moves me all the way to the gut. It is gut-wrenching for me to see this. You know, just for a little perspective, These are just hunger pangs. Listen, This isn't news of cancer. This isn't news, what I heard last night, somebody that's anticipating going to work Monday to to hear and find out that he's being fired. This isn't that kind of horrible, horrible circumstance. They're just hungry. Granted, they might collapse on the way, but there's probably people, maybe, that can help them up. This isn't the most devastating thing in the world, yet Jesus still feels hit in the gut when he sees this level of suffering. Friends, what do you think he feels when tragedy hits? When you experience rejection and persecution and your spouse leaves you, what do you think God feels then? See, our pain affects our God. And I don't know what you've been brought up to believe, but you might have that sanitized view of God, that he is above the fray, he doesn't feel when we hurt. I'm telling you, Jesus, even here, says, my stomach turns at this level of suffering. And we say, if that turns your stomach, then what about what's happening in my life? You must be grieving God. Well, I've given you two layers of the word compassion. Let me give you one more. And now we're going to see what biblical compassion is. It it means to feel deep sympathy for one who is suffering. But listen, there's more. Followed by a strong desire to alleviate their pain and remove their the cause of their suffering. Listen, compassion without our action is just mere pity. You want to have biblical compassion then you've got to be moved in the deepest part of you and then do something that's within your power to alleviate the suffering. The world can produce the first. The world feels bad when TV commercials come on with little children with extended stomachs who have kwashiorkor disease or marasmus. They feel bad and they open up their wallets. But listen, the the Christian has to feel deep sympathy and move relationally towards the one suffering to see if they can remove it. And it's here that we've got to remember just why Mark wrote this gospel. I told you again, he wrote the gospel to Gentiles, right? Listen, he wrote the gospel because Gentile believers in Rome were suffering. Nero is coming to power. Catacombs are being sought out for hidden worship spots. People's, Christians' homes are being taken away. Not yet too much, but pretty soon they're going to be put to death. And this is all ramping up and all these Christians are suffering in Rome and all these Gentile believers are going, but wait a minute, God, why am I suffering? Are you even aware? Are you even... Knowing what I'm going through, do you care? You've got to remember, they were brought up in Rome, in a Greco Roman society. Listen, do you know what that's like religiously? Listen, Roman and Greek gods and goddesses, they don't care. They don't care about human suffering. They play with human lives like we play with dice. All the Roman and Greek gods wanted was their own pleasure. Their stories are filled, excuse me, filled with travesty because their gods are abandoning them. And so here we go. We've got Christianity and the gospel being preached and in the Christianity and the gospel, this God, Yahweh, cares for his people, Jew and Gentile alike. Jesus is training his disciples, the young church, to carry on his mission. By the way, this might be surprising. Do you know where Jesus was at in his timeline on earth? Let's say he was here for three or three and a half years. We don't know for sure. He's about two and a half years into his ministry. He's only got months, friends, before he's going to hang on that cross and die for the sins of the world. And just like a river, when it comes to the lip of the falls, it narrows and it begins to pick up speed. His training is now picking up speed. In the next chapter, you're going to see him setting his face resolutely to Jerusalem. He's going there to die. And training is picking up. He's in full training mode. And the disciples must understand who he is and what is really at the center of this miracle. And it was just a few months ago that he had fed the 5,000. So when you get to verse 4, which reads from the disciples, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? It would likely be a mistake to think that they're doubting Jesus has the ability to feed them. They just saw this. Yes, they were hard-hearted. Yes, their faith was slow and growing. But I doubt they really believed that Jesus lacked the power to do this. For sure, they were expressing their own inability, their own powerlessness to perform this miracle. Listen, they didn't have the power to do this. I could preach week after week and not make one iota of difference in your life if the Spirit of God is not going to dwell in what I'm saying. The Spirit of God has to do the work. It's the power of God, so the glory of God goes to him and not to man. For sure, they're expressing their inability. They had a role in the first miracle, but it was solely the power of God to multiply it. But listen, did you notice in Mark chapter 8, that while in the first feeding miracle, Jesus asked them to feed the crowd, this time he never did. You ever pick that up? In fact, all he said so far was, I have compassion on this crowd. They're going to faint. So maybe there's a different lesson in mind. Let me emphasize where that is. Verse 4, the disciples say, how can one feed, now listen, these people? They didn't say that about the Jewish crowd. There's almost a hint of a derogatory tone. How can one feed these people with bread in this desolate place? You see, they were raised in that religious climate that when you leave a Gentile area, listen, this is what they were taught. When you leave a Gentile area, you stop before you come back into Palestine and you shake the dust off your feet, you shake it off your garments because if you bring Gentile dust into the land of Palestine, you pollute the promised land. That's what they were raised to believe. You don't talk to Gentiles. You don't shake their hands. You don't give them hugs when it's greeting time at church. You only go to the Jews. They were literally raised to despise Gentiles as defiled before the Lord. How can one feed these people? They're aliens, God. They're unclean. They're defiled. They're outside of God's love and favor. Now, you might be thinking, well, Tim, I think you're reading into this a little bit too much. Well, there is a possibility of that. But let me give you two details that Mark gives that underscore what I'm saying. Number one, Jesus takes the seven loaves, look at your text, and he thanks his father and he blesses them. And then he multiplies them and they hand them out. And then he does what he didn't do in the first miracle. He does what Jews never did. He took the fish because somebody handed up a few small fish. And so he takes them and he thanks God for them, blesses them, multiplies, and hands them out. The Jews never prayed more than one time for a meal. Friends, this is a Gentile crowd. Well, you might think, well, that was a little bit anticlimactic, not very convincing. Well, let me give you one better. Verse 8. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. Now, if you want to understand what I'm about to tell you, look down at verse 19. Because Jesus is going to explain and underscore something. He says, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? The answer seven. And we don't really get this in the English translation, but you do when you start reading the Greek. Because the word baskets is repeated twice in verses 19 through 20, right? But they're totally different Greek words. Let me elaborate. Ready? The first one. The baskets used when they when Jesus fed the 5,000. Now listen, hang in here. This is important. They were small containers. They were lunch buckets. They were lunch pails that the Jews used to go to work or on short trips. But in the baskets... When they fed the 4,000, Jews don't use these baskets. These were Gentile baskets. In fact, they were large containers that they carried their laundry in. You'll remember this basket because the Apostle Paul, when the Jews were were plotting to murder him, they lowered him outside the wall of Damascus in one of these baskets, big enough to hold a man. See, Jesus is underscoring to the disciples, listen, with the 5,000 who were Jews, 12 baskets, I'm sufficient. I'm the bread of life for all 12 tribes of Israel. Every Jew that comes to me, I'm going to give them life. But I've got seven baskets here. And by the way, this, this amount in these baskets greatly out exceeds the amount in the 12. Because every Gentile that comes to me, I'm going to give them life. Because my favor extends to them as well. I'm not turning anybody away. I'm the bread of life, and I'm the bread of life for the Jew, and I'm the bread of life for the Gentile. Any who come to me, I will give life to them. And seven baskets is the number of completions, the number of fullness in Scripture. Let me close with this, and that doesn't mean end your thinking. Do you remember? Mark wasn't one of the 12 disciples. So how did he know all of this? Listen, he wasn't there. So how does he have these details? Well, he was the interpreter for the apostle Peter. Peter's the one that gave Mark these stories. And Mark, writing in Greek very, very well, he tabulated these stories. And guess what? It wasn't going to be for much later that Peter would finally get the lesson in the feeding of the 4,000. Don't you remember? He had a vision and this sheet came down from the heavens and in this sheet were unclean and defiled animals and a voice said, Peter, rise and kill and eat. And he says, never, I've never eaten a common or an unclean animal, I cannot do it. And the voice said, don't call common what I've just declared to be clean. And at that same time, a centurion, by the way, that's a Roman, that's a Gentile, his name was Cornelius, is sent to Peter at the same time. And he shows up, these guys came and got Peter, and brought Peter to Cornelius, his close family, and his best friends. And they said, listen, we need to hear about the gospel from you, because I fear God, but I'm not a Christian. I don't know about this Jesus. So Peter shares the gospel to a gentile family and he finally gets it and he writes this truly i understand in other words now i get it that god shows no partiality but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him see jesus was teaching a lesson in the feeding of the four thousand, but they weren't going to get it for years later and that is Jesus is the God who loves all Jew and Gentile alike, which begs us to answer a question. Two of them. Here's the first. Now let's be honest. I don't know your heart. God does. You are naked and bare before Him at your level of your soul. See, so you might as well be honest. Are you filled with compassion? Remember, deep sympathy that moves you to come alongside sufferers and do something about it that's within your power. Is that how you live honestly? Well, let me ask you the second question. Is there anybody that you would have to say is outside of your compassion and your willingness? Last night, a lady came up to me and said, I was so mad when you asked that question. Because immediately a face came to mind. That's the one that you need to go to. And forgive and release and love. And do what you can to be a witness and a testimony for them. Because God loves even the worst people who have hurt you deeply in life. And you may be the vessel that he uses to bring the gospel to him. Lord, thank you for this miracle. Thank you, Father, that you have taught us this morning so deeply. From your words so clearly. Lord, why this miracle took place. This is for the Gentiles. And this was to show the young church that your favor extends, unlike what they were taught, your favor extends to the Gentiles as well as to the Jews. Lord Jesus, you are the God who loves all. And I pray that you would help us to love people as well. Let there not be anybody outside of our love. And teach me, teach us how to live lives of compassion. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.